Today's reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Mike. Morning, Redemption. So I, I think it's kind of funny the way things work out. Um, that, that was a little awkward to have Allison and Chad do the announcement for them being backstories. I'm the one who's going to interview them. And it would be hard for them to just get up here and say, Frank thinks so much of us that he wanted to interview. But that's literally the truth. Um, I've been here more than seven years. Chad was one of the very first persons to ever reach out to me and, and ask to have coffee. And we've been doing that um, every two or three weeks ever since. And so we've gotten to know each other in a way uh, that I think is kind of rare, even in Christian community. And I have found him to be one of the deepest persons I know. He's a screenwriter, um, among other things. He has a, he has a, a job as well. But um, I, every time I sit with him, I learn. And he's done these gospel and marketplace events here at our church many times in the past. And that's what he wanted to do again. And I finally just pushed back on him because what he does in those gospel and marketplace events is he's the one leading it, drawing things out of other people. And I just said, Chad... You, have, you draw us from such a deep well that it's time for somebody to interview you. So that's what's going to happen. And then uh, Allison's the same way. Allison and Sean were here at Redemption Church before I came. And in fact, uh, their son, Jake, was the first person I ever baptized at Redemption Church Arcadia. So Allison and I also go... Uh, way back as well. And every time I've talked to her about what Chad and I talk about, she resonates with it and starts adding stuff. And I'm like, I got to get these two together for backstory. So I'm really excited about this one that's coming up. And it really will have a focus on the marketplace. So if you're struggling with what the gospel means in the marketplace, I would, I would recommend that you come. Uh, and people who have come to this in the past have been really blessed by it as well, because we're trying to draw out those backstories from people that we just don't get a chance to do very often. So I would highly recommend that. So I got to get up here and say how great you two are, and so I'm, I'm pleased that you're going to be doing this with us. Uh, <clears throat> you may have noticed um, I, I, I'm kind of on the mend. I'm, I'm getting better. I, I wouldn't say that I'm under the weather anymore. I'm sort of next to the weather right now, so I'm not over the weather yet. But, just, uh, but you need to know I'm also on medication so that was really trippy during the first service, and if it kicked in even more in the second service, this could be an interesting 40 minutes that we're going to spend together. Um, so one other thing I wanted to mention, um, I mentioned we had two loans. We have the, the, the first mortgage with MidFirst Bank for this property, which is under now. It is now under $1,600,000, and then we had that, what we call the Big R Loan from Redemption Church Central uh, that started at $600,000 about three years ago. And remember, four weeks ago, we said, we're going to kill the loan. That was the big R loan. Well, we killed it, so let's celebrate that. We did kill it. That's over and done with. And um, I, w I would have mentioned it last week, but last week was Easter, and I didn't... Easter's about new life and all that, so I didn't want to talk about killing anything last week. So um, at, at any rate, um, we, we have some overage, which we told you is going to uh, now be start to apply directly to our our mortgage as well. So that's just a great celebration for us. And on July 14th, Sunday, July 14th, uh, we're going to do the very odd thing of, of burning the lien document that Big R had. Um, yeah, in the middle of the hottest day probably in Phoenix, out there we're going to burn the document. That's just kind of the way we do things here. So anyway, all right. So you heard the reading was from Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is what's called a minor prophet in the Old Testament. If you were here uh, during the last uh, quarter of, of 2018, you know that we spent that time uh, doing an overview of all the minor prophets in the Old Testament. It was a great series. We had a lot of really good feedback from it. Uh, it, was, it was fun to be able to see how the, how the gospel is actually manifest in the Old Testament through these prophets. 
uh, but we didn't do Jonah. And the reason we, we did all the, these other prophets, but we didn't do Jonah. And the reason we didn't do Jonah is because we knew from the preaching calendar that we were going to do five weeks in Jonah coming up in spring after Easter. So that's what we're doing the next five weeks is we're going to be looking at the minor prophet of Jonah. And yes, this is, this is the story of the dude with the big fish, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, it's, it's a really interesting, it's so different from so many of the other biblical stories, and it's different from any of the other Old Testament prophecies in so many ways that we have to talk about that and unpack it. By the way, after Jonah, we're going to go back into the New Testament. We're going to spend 10 weeks in the book of Philippians, so Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So what we have to do today is there's four chapters in Jonah. What we have to do today is I have to introduce the book. So that's going to be about uh, 20 minutes, and then we're going to go through chapter 1 and, and start telling the story and lay the groundwork for the other four weeks, and that's going to take another uh, 20 minutes or so. So here we go. We're going to introduce Jonah. So what are the themes that we find in the book of Jonah? I, I will tell you, if you, even if you just have a cursory, quick reading of Jonah, you can see right away that the sovereignty of God is one of the main themes of Jonah. I think that is very obvious. But there are some other themes that maybe you need to dig into the book a little bit more to be able to see that I want to maybe bring to our attention. So, for instance, maybe there's the theme of the church's reluctance to do mission. And yes, I think that we can see that. We at Redemption Church say that we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, but unfortunately, um, even we struggle sometimes to manifest the, the amount of outward-focusedness that we need to be because of the gospel, and I know lots of other ch churches struggle with that too. Then the second theme is our own individual propensity toward rebellion against God. Every one of us has a problem with that, and we see that in Jonah. Jonah rebels against God. And he's a prophet of God, so that's odd. Here's the third theme that we see. The problem of nationalism. Oh, baby, I know I just triggered some people in here. So here you go. We need to define what we're talking about when we say nationalism in this context. So before all you progressives and all you conservatives get on your social media platforms and start typing away, hear me out first, okay? Before we debate, we need to define. So... The, the definition I'm using is from Merriam-Webster. Nationalism is identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. You know, it's good to love our country. In fact, I think we should love our country. And you're looking at somebody who loves his country very deeply. Um, some of you know my father, um, who passed away almost four years ago when he was 94. Uh, my father, uh, before World War II even started, he enrolled at UCLA uh, as a freshman at 18 years old, and he immediately signed up for the Naval ROTC program at UCLA because he said, I know we're getting ready to go to war. I there are so many threats to our nation right now in Europe and in Southeast Asia. I know that something's going to break, and I want to be ready for that. So he spent four years at UCLA preparing himself for World War II in the Naval ROTC. And in fact, in December of his senior year, that's when uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. They let him stay and finish his degree. And then in May, he, he likes to tell the story, he got his diploma in one hand and his orders to report to Honolulu in, in his other hand. And he went to Honolulu. He was assigned to the, um, uh, the destroyer Farragut, the USS Farragut. And he spent three years in the South Pacific in war as a gunnery officer on the USS Farragut. And in fact, was in the Philippines when the nuclear bombs were delivered there uh, towards the end of the war. He sacrificed for his country. He loves his country. And, and he's told me stories, and he's passed a lot of that on to me. But you can also be a patriot, as I know my father was, and not be a nationalist. You can love your country and not be an, a nationalist. That definition of nationalism, which is what Jonah adhered to, he was somebody that was really, he really exalted his ethnicity and his nation over and above even the word of God. So that definition of nationalism, which Jonah adhered to, is one that does not line up with the call of God in our lives. And you can see that even in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, which we're going to look at this summer, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say this, 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than you are. And then verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. In other words, it's fine for us to have our own interests. That's not a problem. The problem comes when we are willing to do something to the detriment of somebody else's interest in order to save our interests. That can be a real problem, and, and we have to wrestle with that. And, and, and here you go. Think about those two verses, by the way, in Philippians uh, chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Do nothing, um, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Think about those two verses. If there was nothing else in the Bible and we just lived as an ethic by those two verses, how much better would this world be? You just think about that. You just think about that. These, these, are, these are deeply influential words that Paul writes. And so this, this idea of interests uh, plays into God's call on our life. Here's the second thing I would say. Let's change that Merriam-Webster definition just slightly to this. Identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of your relationship with Jesus. Now, that's a problem as well, because that's when you have elevated your nation or your politics to the status of God over God. That's a false God. That is an idol, and that is a problem, and that is exactly what Jonah did. And, and I, want you, I want you to know, for the record, I don't want to say this for the record, and I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. I love the United States. I love this nation. But you can also put this into the record. I do not love my nation more than I love Jesus. I love Jesus more than I love my nation. And here you go. I even love Jesus more than my wife, Jackie, and Jackie is pretty darn lovable. You just need to understand. If you don't know her, just take my word for it. And by the way, since we're already immersed in this conversation, which I know I started, let me take it to the next level. I love my wife even more than I love my nation. I do. I love Jackie more than I love the United States. It's not that I don't love the United States, but I love Jackie more. And here's why. Because of this thing, the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. He doesn't say that about the nation. He doesn't say that about anything else. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, this Bible thing is such a problem, isn't it? It just gets in our way, doesn't it? Yeah, but I feel. Eh, doesn't really matter. Yeah, but I think. Eh, make sure it's informed by this. This thing just keeps getting in our way, which can be really challenging. Well, Jonah is a book about nationalism. And church, church, we need to wrestle with that. And we're going to wrestle with that. Continuing with the themes, how about not trusting God when it really counts? Certainly. Or our lack of genuine sacrificial love. All of those themes are true. But here's the biggest and most important theme I find in the book of Jonah. Jonah wants a God that is created in his image. Jonah wants to look at God and then start chiseling away. And Jonah wants to be the potter, and he wants God to be the clay. And it's the other way around. And that is our biggest problem too, y'all. We all have that same problem as well. So frankly, Jonah doesn't much care for Yahweh in this specific case. Yahweh God is not cooperating with Jonah's agenda, and yet, and yet, he's called to be a prophet of God. That's a pretty amazing story. There are so many what we might call juxtapositions in this book that we're going to go through over the next five weeks. So that's, this means that Jonah needs to change his perspective about God, just like many of us do. So some of you are very important, uh, uh, very interested in um, uh, dating, not like eHarmony, but the dating of the book. Okay, so when, when did the book take place? So we, as we understand it, it took place sometime between 780 and 746 B.C. So 20, 28, 2900 years ago. Uh, and remember, 
He's called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is one of the main cities of Assyria, and Assyria was the nation that came in and sacked the the northern kingdom Israel in 722 B.C. So this is all taking place as Assyria is gathering strength and, and that coming storm is coming for Israel. In other words, Assyria is the distinct and clear enemy of Israel. So maybe this is one of the reasons why Jonah really didn't want to go and preach to the Assyrians because they're his enemy. Now many read the book of Jonah and read it as a fairy tale or a myth or as kind of a children's, an ancient children's story. But in reality, the book of Jonah is actually a work of extraordinarily sophisticated literature. And as we go through this in the next five weeks, we're going to start to all see just what great rhetoric this book really is. Uh, furthermore, when you and I, this is what I found, and, and uh, Chad, who is a, a screenwriter, would probably agree with this, I hope. Anyway, uh, is that when we read a book or we hear a story or we watch a movie, what we often do is we want to look for the hero in the story. In this book, I think we should be looking for who we are in each of the characters. So Jonah, Jonah's one of the main characters. One of the commentaries summarizes Jonah's life this way in the book. Jonah runs, Jonah complies, and then Jonah does the bare minimum. We all have some Jonah in us, right? Okay. And then how about the sailors, okay, the, the, the maritimers that are described in the first chapter of this book? Here's what one commentator wrote about the sailors. It appears that the sailors are willing to believe in God, but only when they know that they are in big trouble. We all have some sailors in us too, don't we? And then how about the Ninevites? I've, I've read a lot of history about this, this ancient nation of Assyria, the, the cruelest nation that's ever existed on the earth. Uh, here's what one scholar writes about them. The Ninevites are self-centered, self-righteous, and are quite, quite cruel when they believe that it's justified. Unfortunately, we also all have some Ninevite in us as well. But as for God, understand God is the main character in the book of Jonah. Both the Old Testament and Jesus remind us over and over and over again that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and forgiveness. In fact, those are the words that Jonah himself uses to describe his God that he's angry with in Jonah chapter 4. Those are words coming right from from, uh, Jonah's mouth. And then after he describes God that way to God, he says, would you please just take my life now because I'm so angry at you. So here's what we need to know. This book is going to challenge us. If you were here three weeks ago maybe when I did the All of Life interview with Cody, and Cody said that every one of us walks into church every week with a tumor that's killing us. And our job is not to feed the tumor, but to cut the tumor out. Remember that? Okay, Jonah is a cut the tumor out of us kind of book. We just need to understand that. Um, here's what's both beautiful and painful about Scripture in general and the book of Jonah in particular. It's very much like if you, are, uh, if you have one of these, um, what's called a vanity mirror, that's usually it's a, it's a circle, and you can move it around like this, and it's got the lights around the edge, and then the mirror is not a, one, uh, a ratio of one-to-one reflection, but rather it magnifies your face so that with the light and the magnification, you get it right up there to your face. You can see every little flaw, every little crack, every little black. Okay, that's what Scripture does to our life, and that's what Jonah does to some of our idols, some of our false gods. Okay, so are we looking forward to this? You look so excited right now, I can't tell you, okay? See, here you go. This is not a cupcakes and muffins series. This is a raw broccoli and carrots series with very little salad dressing, okay? And I know some of you, some of, let me tell you, I know some of you are like, Jonah, okay, fish, we got to, what about the fish? What about the fish? Tell us about the fish. Explain the fish. It was a big fish, right? Was it a whale? Was it a shark? What kind of fish? We want to know about the fish, the fish, the fish, the fish. Here you go. The fish is the least of your worries. We're going to get to the fish, but it's actually the least of your worries. The Bible hardly even tells us anything about the fish. The fish is merely an instrument of God's grace and mercy to Jonah in the midst of this story. But don't worry, we will talk about the fish 
but next week. You got to come back next week, okay? So Heath Thomas says this about the fish and about the dilemma of the fish. Attacking the believability of any biblical book won't help us. Rather, we must ask, what is the book telling us about ourselves and God and what we need? So the structure of Jonah is two parts, essentially two events, and here they are. First first part is God calls Jonah to proclaim repentance and redemption to Nineveh, the the Assyrians. Jonah refuses and runs. That's chapters 1 and 2. And then the second part is this. God again calls Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Jonah agrees, and he goes, but he is furious with God about it. He is furious, and that's chapters 3 and 4. And what we find is that Jonah's response to God, whenever God does something that Jonah doesn't like, is to become either angry or depressed. So when God does something Jonah doesn't like, here you go. See if this doesn't sound a little bit familiar for some of us. Jonah gets either angry or depressed. And, and our, our desire is that in the gospel, when God calls us to something that we're not sure about or we don't understand or that we know is going to be hard, that we'll respond by the power of the Holy Spirit in joy and hope and confidence. Also, Tim Keller has written a wonderful book about Jonah. It's called The Prodigal Prophet. And here's his insight on the book of Jonah. He says, Jonah chapters 1 and 2 are a parallel of sorts to the prodigal son, and Jonah chapter, chapters 3 and 4 are a parallel of sorts to the prodigal son's older brother. And, and so let's just read that parable in Luke chapter 15, and you can see it. We have time, so I want, I want you to see this, because I think this is a great insight. So this is the parable of the prodigal son in Luke. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. In other words, give me my inheritance before you die. I want it now. Okay? And he divided his property between them. The father divided his property between the the, the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. He wanted to get as far away from his father as possible. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And the younger son was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he finally woke up out of his stupor, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father, breaking into his son's speech, breaking in early, said uh, said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, working. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fatted calf, you, you killed the fatted calf for him. So you can see that. The first son runs from a loving father, the way Jonah runs from God. And then the older son does what the father wants, but hates him for it. He believes that he's owed something because he's been obedient all of these years, which is actually another form of running, 
We need to realize that, and we need to wrestle with that as well. There are two primary ways that you and I run from God. We run from God through immorality, just abandoning everything, and I'm just going to go my own way. I don't care anymore. I'm just going to live for myself. So that's one way of running from God. And then we also run from God through something called super morality or self-righteousness. I'm just going to be good myself. I don't need God. I'm better than God. We could also call it license and legalism, but that's the two sons in the prodigal uh, story. It's, it's also what Paul unpacks in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. You can see him unpacking the same thing there. And it's Jonah. Jonah has this problem as well. Jonah attempts both of those approaches. He tried running from God, and then he believed that God, here you go, he believed that God was not moral enough because God was willing to show grace and mercy to the Ninevites Israel's greatest enemy. But it goes even deeper than that. Consider this. When Jonah ran from God, he was trying to free himself from the control of God. And then when he, quote, repented and did what God asked, he was trying to control God by making God beholden to him because he obeyed, just like the older brother in the prodigal son. We do the same thing too. We either want to be free from God or we want to control God. But we don't want to be subject to God. That's our problem. We're constantly spinning and manipulating. And so many of us try to do good in the sight of God, not out of joyful response to our salvation, but, but in order to make God owe us something. How many of us have prayed that prayer? God, you see all this stuff I've done. Could you just do this one thing now for me? Another mistake Jonah makes is that he's convinced that it is right for God to show him mercy and grace but to show others justice and punishment. That's called the self-serving bias. I mean, even social science researches human beings and says that's the way we are. We all sort of have that view of the world. But having said all of that, we probably need to cut Jonah some slack. We have the advantage of 20-20 hindsight, and if we were in his shoes, we probably would have done the same thing as him, if we had known the Ninevites the way Jonah knows the Ninevites, and if we had known God the way Jonah knows, knows God. And here's why. By asking Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, it is akin to God asking a Jew in the Auschwitz prison, concentration prison camp to tell the Nazis of God's love, mercy, and compassion for them. I just can't imagine that happening. It's, it's akin to God asking the parents of a child who had been brutally beaten to death by a gang to go and tell the gang of God's love, mercy, and compassion for them. It, it would be akin to asking someone who is gang-raped in their college dorm to go and tell their assailants of God's love, mercy, and compassion for them. It would be akin to asking someone who lost a million-dollar commission to somebody else in their office because they stabbed them in the back to go to that person and tell him or her of God's love, mercy, and compassion for them. Here you go. Jonah is the oppressed being called to go in love to the oppressor. That's a hard assignment no matter what the context is. I think we need to realize that. So Jonah not only hates the Ninevites for their cruelty, but he is also unhappy that God might bless them, and that's in fact what happens in chapter 4. The book of Jonah becomes actually a beautiful picture of an Old Testament working out of Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount when he says you need to love your enemies, okay? So here's what Jesus is saying there. There's a number of different Greek words that you can use to translate the word love. The word that Jesus uses there is agape. That word for love specifically means unconditional selfless love. In other words, love your enemies. When he says love your enemies, Jesus is saying, look, I know there's nothing worthy about your enemies that would make you want to love them. You need to love them anyway. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you need to love them the way I loved you because while you were yet sinners, I died for you. There's nothing that you bring to the party. There's no worthiness that you have, and yet I loved you so much that I died for you, and, and I love you, and now I'm, I've imputed that unconditional selfless love to you so that out of your overflow, you can actually love your enemies, who I admit probably aren't worthy of your love, but you need to love them anyway because you're now loving them out of your character and not out of your desire. 
And that's what God is calling Jonah to do. So, let's read chapter 1 uninterruptedly just to get the the story of chapter 1 and and get some context here. And then we'll make a few comments. I'll give you three thoughts before we leave and we'll be out of here, okay? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of, of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. You're going to find in the rest of chapter 1, there's a lot of hurling going on in chapter 1. This word becomes uh, somewhat important, or at least it's used quite often. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. The sailors were afraid. Now, we need to understand, these were professional sailors. So if they were afraid, this was a mighty storm. They were used to storms. They were used to having that happen. So this was a pretty big uh, storm. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Each of them had a, a different nationality, which means that each of them have a, had a different God. And so they're all crying out to their gods, except Jonah. Jonah's the only one not crying out, okay? But they're all crying out to their, their various gods to, so that they, they might be um, saved. And so then they hurled the cargo that was in, in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. That's what you do when you're in a very bad storm is you try to lighten the load uh, in the ship. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had lain down and was fast asleep. So he was really helping, okay? So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they all said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And, and, And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. When the men, then the men were exceedingly afraid, because his God had made the sea. He told them, the God made the sea, and now it's a tempest, okay? And so, um, uh, so he said, uh, where was I? I get so excited about this stuff. I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The men didn't want to sacrifice Jonah. They tried to save his life. That's an act of grace right there. They tried very hard to do this without Jonah's suggestion. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. In other words, we're getting ready to throw him into the sea now. For you, O Lord, have done as it it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then verse 17, what some of you have been waiting all morning for. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So um, we need to talk about how cruel the Assyrians were because this is one of the things that's important to know in the context of this story. Assyria, I mentioned it uh, last fall during this series in the Minor Prophets, because many of the Minor Prophets were dealing with uh, the Israelite relationship with Assyria and the fall of, of the northern kingdom, Israel, to Assyria. The Assyrians were the cruelest people group to ever live. I mean, it, most historians will tell you they were even worse than the Nazis and, and would call them a terrorist nation, okay? And here's just one example, I, I two examples for you, but there's many of these examples. For example, one of the things they would do 
for game and sport with captive people is they would go and cut off both of their legs and one of their arms and then mockingly shake their hand and, and greet them while they bled out and died. They did that for fun. Something else they would do, how's that bagel, by the way, this morning? It's going right now. Okay, here's the other thing they would do for fun. They would skin captives alive. They'd skin them alive. And, and tor- they got a kick out of torturing people. They were bad, bad people. So there is this fear of the Assyrians there that we have to acknowledge. Now, what about Jonah? We don't know a whole lot about Jonah, but this is one thing we do know. Jonah is the only prophet that is called by God to go to the enemies of his people and actually go to them on their territory and preach to those people. Lots of the prophets are called to go to the enemies of God. In other words, um, Jews who had turned away from God and rebelled against God, that was pretty common. And, and, and there were also prophecies about the enemy of God's people, and, and God, God would ask the prophets to preach those, and there was always a chance for redemption and a chance uh, for a way out for the enemies of God's people. But this is the only prophet who actually has to go on their home turf. And, and again, decidedly the worst people uh, to ever have to go and give a message like this. It's kind of uncomfortable. I think we can understand why Jonah might be a little bit reticent, okay? And, and then you see in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Um, this is what makes Israel's uh, prophets unique and different from all the other ancient prophets. We need to remember that there were lots of ancient prophets from other nations and ancient prophecies. It was not just something that happened with Israel and, and the people of God. But what made the, the, the Israelite prophets uh, unique was because they did it based on the word of the Lord coming to them. Other ancient prophets would discern or try to tell the future through different methodologies, three of which, one of which we actually have in the book there, but three of which are these. Uh, one of the most common ways was in order to figure out what the future held or maybe uh, what country was about to attack them or maybe how they should plan a military um, charge or something like that, they would cut open an animal and read the vein patterns on their major organs. And they actually had books that help explain if the veins go this way, this is what's going to happen. It was like seminary, you know, for, for being a, a future teller. You could study these books. Uh, another thing they would do is they would study the, st- the alignment of the stars, and they would discern from the stars what, the, what was going to happen and what they were supposed to do. And then another way was they would cast lots, which is exactly what they did in, in um in, in chapter 1, which, by the way, the lots ended up being correct. It, casting lots is like dice. And the lots actually ended up being correct because God was directing the lots in this case, okay? But the, the prophecies of the Jews were unique because they only did it based on the word of the Lord. They, they compared the word of the Lord to somebody's behavior and said, here's what's going to happen. Other ancient prophets just tried to see and discern the future through these other methodologies. So Jonah refuses to go. That's the first three verses. And many people do believe that Jonah was simply afraid of the Assyrians. And yes, they were awful. But here's the other reason Jonah didn't go, and this is a bigger reason that Jonah didn't go. Jonah knows God. And he knows of his love and mercy, even for people that that we would judge as awful. That's why he didn't want to go. He did not want even that 1% chance that God was going to show mercy and love to these awful, awful people because he knows that's the kind of God he is. So I want you to think right now, who is that one person in your life? You don't, please don't say it out loud, but that one person in your life, you would be really mad if God forgave them and redeemed them. So that gives you a little bit of insight, just a little bit, on how Jonah felt about the Assyrians. So he runs more out of anger against God than fear of the Assyrians. So again, he's just like you and me. Grace and mercy for me, judgment and punishment for other people. So he decides he's going to go to Tarshish rather than... He doesn't just say, no, I'm not going. He decides he needs to flee from God. So you know my love of maps. I don't have a map, but here you go. I'm going to be the map. It's like Dora the Explorer. I'm the map, okay? So I am Israel, and here's where Jonah is. Uh, Nineveh is up here to the northwest. Tarshish is, is way, 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 way over here to, uh, I'm sorry, to the northeast. This is, this is the northwest. Tarshish is the complete opposite way. So it would be like God 
calling you and me to go to Denver and preach in Denver, and we say, I'm not going to Denver. I don't like that. It's a mile high. I don't like it. And we go instead to Seattle, okay? That's essentially what it, it looks like. Now, I want you to stop here and think about this. Jonah was running geographically from the presence of God, which you can't outrun the presence of God. Many of us in this room aren't necessarily running from God geographically, but we are running through bitterness and resentment and joylessness. We're running nevertheless. It's just not geographic. God wants to be in relationship with you. We're also told several times, Jonah goes down. Jonah goes down. Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down into the boat. Jonah goes down into the sea. Going down in in this literature, in this rhetoric, is synonymous with dying. Jonah gets, the further that Jonah tries to run from God, the closer he's getting to death. The closer he's getting to Sheol, we'll see that in chapter 2, that he's in a sense in Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's hell. So this is significant that Jonah is described as going down, going down, going down as he's running from God. And so we need to grapple with and understand this truth. The truth that sin and rebellion against God is a willful act of violence on the soul. My sin is a willful act of violence on my own soul. Uh, Tim Keller writes this, Sin will bring a storm, either immediately or eventually, because sin is addictive. Sin behaves like any other addictive substance, fun and pleasurable at first, destruction later. And and we also see here that human sin also creates turmoil in God's creation, okay? So now the sea is roaring uh, more than the the professional sailors can handle. So as a result, our sin not only touches us, but it touches others. I hear this all the time. It's okay if I do something wrong as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. Here's the truth about that. Our sin, no matter how much we try to quarantine it, will eventually affect others. It's just going to. And in this case, it affects these sailors. These sailors had nothing to do with Jonah, and his running from God is now affecting them, touching them. And in verse 5, it's interesting. Uh, One scholar uh, says that Jonah is sleeping the sleep of sorrows. Have you ever slept the sleep of sorrows? The sleep of sorrows is when we sleep to avoid unpleasantness. The, The sleep of sorrows is when we sleep to avoid responsibility. The sleep of sorrows is when we sleep to avoid stress or anxiety, and that's what Jonah is doing. So Keller, again, makes this important observation. At least twice in this book, Jonah, God's chosen man, shows apathy at best, and really it is disdain, for people with different ethnicities and faith. For God, this is a problem. We are not called to agree with others who are different, but we are called to respect and honor others. And it is interesting, God calls Jonah to rebuke the Ninevites. He refuses and rebels, but now in his rebellion, Ninevite-like people are actually rebuking the prophet of God. You see that? These people who don't believe in God are actually rebuking the prophet of God. And then verse 6, this is when the captain comes to Jonah. He says, don't you care that we're perishing? Years ago, a pastor preached this verse as a metaphor for the world rebuking the church. When the church, sadly as it often is, is not as interested in the common good as the rest of the world is, the church needs to be rebuked. The church needs correction. We need to hear that from time to time. That's why we're gospel-centered and outward-focused, but even in the midst of that, we have blind spots. We have blind sides, and we need to be able to engage with those. Jonah, the person of God, is confronted much like the church is sometimes confronted today. Don't you care that we're perishing? The church needs to be a home for believers. The church needs to be a hospital for sinners but not at the expense of our call to also be in the world, serving and loving our neighbor, even at times when the world burns us for it, because the world's going to burn us for it. That's part of the deal, Christians. That's part of the deal. So the captain and others come to Jonah and say, you're a man of faith, right? Why wouldn't you use your faith to help us? We're all in the same boat. I'm the king of dad jokes, okay? So I had to throw that in there. So the great Jacques Ellul, 
writes this about these verses. The lot of the believer and the, and the non-believer is often the same. Those of us who are believers are part of both the faith community and the human community. We need to remember that. And then the rest of those verses, you see like the sailors were asking that national identity question, who are your people, who is your God? They were asking all these questions about Jonah's national identity. In the church, what we need to ask is, we need to ask the missional questions. We need to ask us the questions that get at the heart of the matter. Jonah is part of the people who are supposed to be a light to the nations. That's what Israel was called to be. But here he's actually responsible for the Israelites being a curse to the nations. You see the constant juxtaposition in this story, the way things aren't supposed to be. And he did it because of his nationalism. He did it because of his false god. And I know that's a hard word, but we need to sit in that. And we should also remember and consider and sit in what Jason Crabb writes. Jason Crabb writes that not all storms come to disrupt your life. Some storms come to clear your path. And that's actually what happened with Jonah. It was a long way around to get him to go to Nineveh, but this storm helped to clear the path for him to go uh, to Nineveh. And remember, he's, he's on the sea, which means he's in trouble with God because God created the sea. That's the beauty of this. We can, we can feel like we can outrun the presence of God, but you can't outrun the creation of God. God is sovereign over everything. He created everything. So no matter where you run, you're always surrounded by God and his creation. That's just the fact of it. And if that's true, that means that every nation in this world is God's. He's sovereign. I'm not saying they all believe, but I am saying that he is sovereign over every nation in this world. He created it. He created it all, and we need to remember that. So we may feel like we can escape God, but we can never escape his created order. We are living in God's world. And then verse 17, next week, the fish. So, three things I want you to think about as we go. Here's the first thing. At the end of chapter 1, It appears as though God is judging his people. He's judging Jonah, so he's judging his people, and that's right. And it also appears that other nations, the sailors, take notice of God judging his person. That's pretty cool, okay? But here's the question. It says that they believed, but was righteousness accredited to them? That is is something that's been debated about Jonah literally for centuries, okay? Okay. One scholar says, look, it says that they believed, but it doesn't say it like in Genesis chapter 15 when it says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that. Uh, And so he argues that they believed in the moment. They had a foxhole conversion. They believed temporarily, but once they got out of the trouble, they they forgot. But there's also some evidence there that they do act like they believe in God. I mean, they sacrifice to God. So that's kind of an open question, but it does lead to us asking this question. These are the sailors we're talking about now. So here's the question. How many sailors do we have in this church? How many sailors do we have in in this church? And that can be interpreted two ways. Number one is, how many people in this church believed but really don't believe? In other words, they kind of get the God thing, they kind of get the gospel thing, but they're still living with one foot in the world and one foot in God's camp, and they're trying to play both ends against the middle, and they really haven't committed to one or the other. So how many sailors do we have in the church? We should wrestle with that. But here's the other thing that we should wrestle with. How many sailors do we have in this church? If they did believe, and, and, and at least they believed temporarily, but if they, even if they believed uh, temporarily or eternally, doesn't matter. The fact that they believe came as a result of probably the most unexpected person and the most unexpected way ever that they believed in God. So the question then becomes, how many sailors do we have in this church because somebody completely unexpected came into your life and told you about Jesus? I have a jo- in other words, who's the Jonah in your life? I have a Jonah in, in my life, and her name is Jackie. Completely unexpected. When I fell in love with Jackie, I had no idea that I would be standing here the Sunday after Easter preaching the gospel in Arcadia. That you would have freaked me out if I had told you that, okay? There's no way, but that's what happened. Jackie's my Jonah. Second of all, we really need to take sin more seriously, y'all. 
The effects of sin, your sin, my sin, it's very much like being exposed to radiation. Unlike being pierced with a sword or shot with a gun, the destructive effects of sin don't always pop up right away. It usually takes longer. Sin slowly but surely erodes and deteriorates our soul. It erodes and deteriorates our relationship with God. It erodes and deteriorates our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with God's creation. And those effects don't always become apparent right away, but only after it's actually too late to do anything about it. How many of you ever said to yourself, I never intended for it to get this far? Okay. Here you go. This, ought to, this might be a good t-shirt. Two words. Sin sucks. And it sucks the very life out of us. One of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, said it this way. The worst characteristic of sin is that it always takes you farther than you wanted to go. It keeps you there longer than you wanted to stay and costs you way more than you were willing to pay. And that's why the grace of God, as manifest in this story in a big fish and manifest for us today through the cross and resurrection of Jesus is so amazing. Jesus not only saves us from the eternal consequences of our sin, but he also empowers us to live as the people of God, people of grace and love, people of service and prayer. So we need to be more serious about sin, and we need to be more serious about Jesus. And then finally, there is a sense in which Jonah becomes Jesus to the entire boatload of sailors. I don't know if you noticed that, but he saved the sailors by sacrificing himself. Now, he does it imperfectly, and he does it only temporarily, but he does it nonetheless. And again, that's why we should take Jesus more seriously along with our sin, because Jesus saves us perfectly, and he saves us eternally. Let's pray together. Lord God, what a story, man. I'm telling you, what a whirlwind this morning. Uh, the Ninevites, Jonah, the fish, you, the sailors, the context, the history, the, just the, the process of thought of these people, all of these things come to life when we begin to see a little bit of us in all of these situations and in all of these characters. And so I would pray that we would be drawn to you, that we would be drawn to your love, your grace, your mercy through your son, Jesus Christ who hung on the cross for us and then busted out of that tomb three days later to give us eternal life. That's where we find our power. That's where we can be filled by your spirit. God, thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.